When my brother Cindy was four years old, he was possessed by a demon. I wasn't even born yet, but I've heard the stories. The way my mama always told it, it all started when a friend of hers gave Sydney a stuffed rabbit named Mr. Jenkins. It had belonged to the woman since she herself was a child, and was given to Sydney to help with the nightmares he was having, as the same toy had helped the woman's night terrors when she was young as well. At first, Sydney had improved, but then my parents noticed that he was acting different. Anger and violence were part of it, but that wasn't the worst. No. The thing that always upset Mama when she talked about it was that he would get this terrible, sly look on his face when he thought no one was looking. It was an adult look, an evil look that didn't belong on the face of any child, much less Sydney, who had always been sweet and kind. It only got worse over the next several years. I was born when Sydney was six, and I remember things when they were at their worst. Strange things would happen around the house. We were all plagued by strange and terrible dreams, and any time we had a pet, they would die mysteriously. The unspoken question was never whether Sidney had a hand in it, but rather whether he had physically killed the poor thing or had it been done by the unseen creature that haunted his heart. For a long time, we didn't have a name for that creature, and it wasn't until later we started to refer to it as Mr. Jinkies. This was partly because giving it a name would have meant acknowledging it was real. Beyond that, Mr. Jinkies was the name of the stuffed rabbits, and for the first few years, no one even made the connection between the toy and the entity that had taken a hold of Sydney. The work friend that had given us the rabbit had left Mama's office and moved away soon after when we got Mr. Jinkies, but at the time, no one realized that Sydney's odd behavior and fixation on the toy was anything other than him acting up and loving Mr. Jinkies. And then one day, the rabbit disappeared. I was an infant at the time, but my father told me once that the strangest thing about it going missing was that Sydney didn't seem to care. He'd been inseparable from that thing since he'd first gotten it, but when it was gone, my brother didn't miss a beat. It wasn't until later that we understood that was because the real Mr. Jinkies had never left. I never knew my brother when he wasn't possessed, so at first it didn't seem strange when he would say cruel things to me or hurt me when no one was around. As I got older and saw how older children were, how other siblings treated each other, I realized my mistake. I told our parents and they were properly upset, but I can't say they were entirely surprised. They had already figured out something was deeply wrong with Sydney by that point, and if they weren't ready to say words like spirit or demon yet, they should have known enough to watch him more closely around his little brother. Still, if I hated them a little for their past willful blindness, I was relieved when his treatment of me became the breaking point. Before my outcry, Sydney had occasionally gone to child psychologists and medical doctors, but our parents had largely tried to handle his condition on their own. Looking back at it now that I'm older, I realize that this mainly consisted of them lying to each other, trading reassurances that this was all just a phase Cindy was going through. But when they found out he had been hurting me, they sent him for an in-house psychological evaluation and treatment. 
This was when I was about five, and the more obvious strange things hadn't really started yet. But even if they had, my parents wouldn't have told the doctors about it. It was a double-edged shame, you see. A shame to have a child that was under the influence of some unseen inhuman thing, and a shame to believe that something so foolish as that could be true. So, they wasted years on drugs and therapy, punishments and pleading, and over the years our house became a prison. My door was locked and there was a door wedge tight against the bottom. My parents' door was the same. Cindy's was similar, except his locked and wedged from the outside. I used to lay in bed at night when I was a little boy, afraid to go to sleep because I didn't want to be taken by Sidney or the thing that lived behind his eyes. I knew he should be secure in his room. The door was heavy and solid and there was chicken wire over the nailed down windows, but it didn't matter. I didn't think he necessarily needed to leave his room to hurt us. I could feel him, feel it on the other side of the house, thinking about us, sending out tendrils to poison us and weaken us, all while smiling that terrible, knowing smile. And week after month after year, it was working. We grew weak from the constant exhaustion, from being watchful, from being worried and afraid. That's how it wins, you see, by being patient. It chips at you and chips at you, digging away at the walls of your sanity and your soul with a tiny little spoon like in those prison escape movies where they tunnel out of their cell. And Mr. Jinkies was trying to get in. Not out, but the reasoning was the same. Just dig away a little at a time and no one will notice until it's too late. I grew into a frightened, distrustful boy that was prone to anxiety and emotional outbursts. My father became increasingly short-tempered and would fly into terrible rages for no apparent reason. My mama took to over-medicating and crying almost daily. In all that time, Cindy would just sit back and watch, drinking it all in. By the time I turned seven and Cindy was thirteen, it had become clear that our house was not really ours anymore. We were seeing and hearing things, finding objects moved around, and living with the constant feeling that something was present that hated us and meant us harm. All of these things were frightening, and not just because of the events themselves, but because of the message they were meant to send. Mr. Jinkies was in control now, and the time for hiding was over. You may be questioning why it took so long for my family to realize the depth of the problem we were facing, but... You have to understand that these kinds of things, they don't happen quickly. It's not like you see in a horror movie, where there's a big dramatic reveal full of blood on the walls and people levitating. Instead, it's like a slow-moving virus infecting the person, and by extension, their family, and not making itself known until it's too late. Except that's not quite right, because... Mr. Jinkies wasn't a virus, it was a, a parasite, draining all the love and goodness from Cindy and replacing it with something dark and filthy, corrupting him, poisoning us all. One day my parents found where Sidney was preparing for some kind of uh, ritual, I guess. 
They would never say what exactly they found, only that it was in the back of the old backyard work shed, and it was terrible. And we never knew what the ritual was for. They couldn't even say for sure that it hadn't already been completed. Cindy was questioned about it, of course, but he just smirked and acted ignorant. When he was younger, he would cry and act confused about how he was being treated, always the prime suspect when something went wrong and always locked away in his room at night. As he had gotten older, Cindy had become more openly hostile, full of contempt as he mocked our fear. Still, his expression changed that evening when there was a knock at the door. A thin-faced man introduced himself as Christopher Darrow. A former priest, he said. He now helped families in need of parapsychology counseling and assistance in some forms of what he called spiritual warfare. He had a severe look about him, but he spoke with a kind of refined intelligence and authority that wasn't unkind. It was also clear from the beginning that my parents were desperate enough to take any help someone offered, particularly from someone that would actually believe what was going on. The shop owner had alerted Darrow about the visit immediately, both because of the dangerousness of the items Sidney had been inquiring about and the shop owner's intuition that the boy before him was infested by something unnatural. Darrow was standing in our front hall by this point, and I was already seeing our parents' shoulders slump with relief. They were satisfied with the explanation and were more than willing to have him come examine Cindy. My brother was locked up in his room at this point, and Mama stayed with me as our father took the man upstairs. It wasn't long before I heard Cindy start to screech and yell, and in less than an hour, it was done. My father was pale and clearly shaken by the experience, but he also seemed convinced that Darrow had expelled whatever was living in my brother for good. Darrow cautioned that it would be a slow process of recovery and that we would need to be patient with Cindy, but that we should see no further problems of the spiritual variety out of the boy. And just like that, the man was gone again. It all happened so fast, and it wasn't until a few hours had passed that our parents had started questioning the strangeness of the entire encounter. And honestly, they never questioned it too much, mainly because the man seemed to have worked a miracle. Cindy was still odd-acting for the next few days, but more because he just seemed subdued and traumatized. By the end of the month, he was like a different person. He was being nice to me, getting along with our parents, and not getting into any trouble at school. By the time he was 14, the locks had come off of our bedroom doors and our house felt like home again. In the 10 years since, Cindy's completed high school and college with good grades. He's already been accepted into a philosophy graduate program that starts next spring. He was going to start this past fall, but then Mama suddenly got sick. We were thinking she was going to get over it. She had started feeling and looking better after all, but then one day I came home from school to find out that she had died 30 minutes before when Cindy was alone with her. I remember the summer I spent with my uncle when I was 10. 
things were good at home by then, but I still enjoyed being out in the world and away from all the memories of our house held for things were good at home by then, but I still enjoyed being out in the world and away from all the memories our house held for a few days or weeks when I got the chance. My uncle's place was entirely different than anything I'd ever known, a remote farm surrounded by woods. It was peaceful and beautiful, free of fear or worry. I used to spend hours walking in the nearby woods, and one day when I came back to the house, my uncle stopped me as I was walking in. I had a tick on my neck. I think my uncle expected I was going to be upset about it, but I had been through much worse than getting bit by a bug. Still, he cautioned me not to move as he got ready to remove it with a pair of needle-nose pliers. The trick, he said, was to make sure you got the whole thing when you pulled it. If you didn't get close enough to the skin, you could pull off the body of the tick and leave the head. That, he said, could lead to an infection down the line. Almost as though he was disappointed I wasn't more squeamish about it, he went on, his mouth twitching with barely suppressed mischievous grin. He told me he'd even heard stories of the tick surviving without its body. Sometimes, he said, the tick would just keep on living and drinking from its victim. Even at ten, I knew he was joking, but I always remembered the story. I think even I knew he was unintentionally teaching me something important. Everyone thinks that Cindy is fine. Our father will hear no bad word spoken about him. When I asked why Cindy was with Mama when she died, our father had told me that he'd allowed it. That Cindy said he had something important to tell her and that he had been right outside the door the entire time my brother was in there with her. That there wasn't anything mysterious or sinister about her death. She'd just been sicker than anyone realized. When I subtly asked Cindy's friends how he'd been acting lately, they act like I'm the weird one. They say he's been the same as always. Awesome. I tried talking to his girlfriend about it, and at first she just looked confused. When I kept pressing, feeling sure she must have seen the sign of his wrongness, she started shaking her head and stood up to walk away. She said I was making her uncomfortable. I wanted to shout at her to tell her that she should be fucking uncomfortable because she was with a monster, but... I held my tongue and told her I was sorry. That it was all just a bad joke on my part. But of course, it's not a joke. Mr. Jinkies is still in my brother, just like always. Whatever that Darrow man did, at most he weakened it. He might have gotten the body of the tick, but he somehow left the head, and that's all that thing needs to live and control my brother. To make him kill our mother and corrupt our lives. So this morning, I killed Sydney. It wasn't difficult. He'd always pretended to love me and trust me since he was cured, and when I said I wanted to go out to our uncle's farm, he acted happy to come with me. It was our farm now, anyway. Our uncle had died at the end of that same summer where he told me about the tickhead, and while we didn't get out there often, I still tried to go for walks in those woods every month or two. I waited until we were near the edge of a tall cliff far back in the woods, one with a small but fast river pushing past some forty feet below. I struck him from behind with a rock, hoping the force of it would send him forward and off the edge. Instead, he wheeled backward before falling down in the grass. 
I'd hit him in the back of the head, but clearly his brain was damaged some from the blow. He looked around confusedly, his right eye nearly black from its enlarged iris while his left eye fought to focus on me. I thought he might curse me or try to attack, but instead he just sat there holding his head and, and crying. You have, you have to fight it, Brian. I know it's in you. I've suspected it for a long time. Just don't let it, don't let it trick you. I was approaching him as he spoke, the sharp rock raised above my head, seeming to understand that his words were having no effect. He stopped and lowered his eyes. Please, don't hurt anyone else. After I was done, I threw him off the cliff and into the water below. As I suspected, the current quickly carried him downriver into a series of sharp rocks that would help conceal his initial injuries. My story would be that we had taken separate paths while walking, and when I couldn't find him after some time, I started searching for him. I'd been careful not to get any blood on me, and the rock was disposed of far away, so there's nothing to tie me to his death when they eventually find his body. Besides, I doubted anyone was going to look into it that far anyway. He was a troubled boy after all. Sure, he'd had a few good years, but who knew what demons he still harbored. Maybe he had committed suicide, or maybe it was a tragic accident, but one thing was certain... His good younger brother would have never hurt him. Everyone knows what a good and caring guy I am. Always honest and thoughtful, never in trouble, graduating valedictorian in the fall. I have a sterling reputation. I made sure of it. The only sad thing is that no one will appreciate the sacrifice I had to make by killing my own brother. They'll never know the evil that I've purged from this world by doing what they were too weak or too selfish to do. They'll never realize I'm a hero. But I guess that's okay. I didn't do it for the glory, and who knows, it may not be the last time I get to do something brave. Besides, I'm not stupid. I understand most people would think I murdered my brother rather than saving him and the world from a terrible monster. Those people can't accept a word that bleeds outside the mundane boundaries of their narrow view of things. They don't have the courage to see me as I am yet. But that's alright. I'm very patient. My mother has lived in the same apartment building for the last two decades. Even three years ago when she had her car accident and went through six months of therapy to be able to walk again, she refused to move from the fifth story home she'd had since I moved away from college. I tried to point out that while she was getting around okay with her new cane, a ground floor place would be a lot more convenient. She nodded toward the hallway as she pointed out that the elevator made every floor the ground floor. When I asked her what she'd do if the elevator was out or if there was a fire, she just shrugged. Well, Maddie, I guess I'll tumble my ass down the steps. My mother's attachment to her apartment isn't limited to the place itself, of course. She likes the neighborhood and she also likes her neighbors. Apartment buildings are funny. A lot of times you live with dozens of other people without knowing them at all. But her building had enough long-term tenants that over time, people grew familiar with each other. They chit-chat in the hallway. Occasionally, they might have a party or water each other's plants. 
For her part, my mother was among the most social of the social butterflies in the building. She worked from home, which gave her plenty of opportunities to encounter the strangers around her and make them something more. Her next-door neighbor, Mrs. Seibert, had been one of her closest friends for a number of years. I remember in my 20s, I'd come home to visit, and they'd been hanging out like college roommates in one apartment or the other, talking, watching a movie, or having a couple of drinks. Then, very suddenly, it just stopped. Mom stopped mentioning her at all, and when I asked what Mrs. Seibert was up to, she just sounded anxious and changed the subject. It wasn't until a few days later that Mom told me that her friend had cut all ties with her and pretty much everyone else in the building some time back. At first, she hadn't known why. She'd been worried she'd offended the other woman somehow or that something was wrong. She'd tried to call or get her to the door multiple times, but she refused to respond beyond telling her through the door that she wasn't interested in socializing anymore, to please go away. And so, as much as it hurt and worried her, she had. I could tell as she told me about the death of her friendship that it still caused her a lot of pain, and I found myself both sympathizing with my mother and feeling resentment towards the woman that had been a good friend of her for so long. I asked my mom if she'd ever found out the reason behind the sudden change. She had. That had been the reason for her call and her confession to me. Just that morning, all of the tenants had gotten a note in their mailboxes for Mrs. Seibert. It said, in short fashion, that for the past several years, she'd been dealing with a degenerative neurological disorder, and that it had been her decision to withdraw from an active social life for reasons that were her own. But, that as she neared the end of that decline, she was going to have a regular nurse take care of her. That would likely turn into full-time hospice care in under a year. She offered this note as a brief apology and explanation for the equipment and staff that might be utilizing the elevator and briefly cluttering the fifth floor hallway from time to time. She thanked everyone for their past friendship and asked that they continue to respect her wish for privacy. My mother was crying as she told me this. She said that she'd had the strong urge upon reading the note to go to Mrs. Seibert and try to talk to her anyway. Let her know she was there for her any time she needed anything. Yet, as she headed down their hallway with the well-meant plan in her head, she saw the woman's door was already open. Two large men were maneuvering a large hospital bed and through the narrow front door frame, grunting and muttering as they twisted it this way and that. Mom had looked past them into the apartment. It was largely dark except for patches of gray morning sun deeper inside. She could see part of the living room where her and Mrs. Seibert had spent so much time together. And then, after a moment, she realized she was seeing Mrs. Seibert herself. The woman was sitting in a chair, shrunken and gray, with long, stringy hair and a drawn face punctured by wide, staring eyes. She looked twenty years older instead of four, a ghost of the woman she'd once known. Mom had raised her hands in solemn greeting, testing the waters to see if catching the other woman's attention might be enough to reestablish even tenuous contact. Mrs. Seibert's eyes had shifted. Even at a distance, Mom had been sure she'd seen her. But she didn't smile or wave. Didn't stir at all. The only signal, a glance in her direction, was 
there, and then it was gone, and her old friend went back to staring at, well, she had no idea. Her heartbreaking mom abandoned her plan and went to her own apartment and closed the door. I talked to mom for two hours that night, doing my best to console her. Over the next few months, she would bring up Mrs. Seinbert occasionally, but the mentions grew more and more sporadic. There was no news or real signs of change other than strange people going in and out of the apartments at all hours of the day and night. It took me a while to recognize the shift in my mother's tone when she talked about Mrs. Seibert. Her voice was still laden with worry and sadness, but there was a growing thread of suspicion there as well. Once I noticed it, it was hard to be concerned. My mother was not generally a morose or a suspicious person. If anything, I'd always felt she was too willing to overlook others' flaws and give them the benefit of the doubt, but with this... At first, it came across as concern for Mrs. Seibert. Was she being treated well? Were her caretakers doing their best? Were they trustworthy? But it wasn't long before her concerns had seemingly shifted to the woman herself. What was she doing over there? She heard strange noises in the middle of the night. Singing. Animal sounds, even. Though there was no pen policy in the building. Sometimes it sounded like people were chanting something. Not just one person, but several. My worry was growing at this point, not about Mrs. Seibert, but my mother. In most ways, she seemed the same as she always had, but this weird obsession with her neighbor, was it just her way of dealing with losing her friend, just being a weird older woman? Or was it the sign of some mental issue blossoming into my mother? I told myself I was being an alarmist, but by the third conversation about strange, terrible noises and hearing the women over there singing some kind of creepy song, I decided to quit verbally nodding along and help my mom through whatever what was going on. Mom, could it just be the TV or something? Maybe she's playing it louder and you're just hearing that. No, Maddie, I'm not stupid. I've never heard anything like this from her apartment before, and we certainly never used to watch anything that sounded like that. Yeah, I mean, I get that, but that doesn't mean that's not what it is. Maybe she's watching a lot of horror movies or something. Maddie, I know you don't know her that well, but Cecilia can't stand horror movies, and I certainly don't think she'd be watching that kind of thing now with, well, with whatever's going on with her health. Given given the way she looked when I saw her last, I don't know that she's watching much of anything. Maybe, but maybe not. Her taste might have changed, right? Or maybe she always liked that kind of stuff, but she kept it from you because she knew that you didn't like it. Just because you are friends and live next door to each other doesn't mean you know everything about her. I'm not trying to be mean, but I think you need to just let it go. It's upsetting you, and again, not trying to sound crappy, but that's not really your business. If she really is dying, she deserves to do it how she wants, and you dwelling on whatever she's up to over there isn't helping either of you. Mom was silent for several moments and then changed the subject. A few minutes later, she got off the phone. After that, we talked a little less frequently, but when we did, the subject of Cecilia Seibert didn't come up. Until two weeks ago, when I answered a phone call from my mom as I was driving home from work. 
She's well. What? Who's well? Cecilia. I just saw her walking away from the building as I came from the store. She, well, she looks better than I've ever seen her. Younger and strong. She was walking by herself without any problem, and if I didn't know any better, I'd have to sworn she was no more than 30. Well, I mean, that's good, right? Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's just... It's strange, isn't it? How did she get well? How did she get to looking so young? It must be something they did over there. Something happened next door. I can feel it. Or her medicine is helping her, or she was just having a good day and wearing makeup. I'd just be happy she looks better and try not to worry about it. Yeah, sure, you're right. I'll just let it go. And again, I thought she had. Then, three nights ago, I got an email from my mother. Madeline. As you know, I hate sending emails. They seem very impersonal to me, and while I use them frequently for work, I try to avoid them in my private life whenever possible. In this case, however, I think it's the best means of communicating, as by the time we receive and read it, I'll be done with it. We can talk about it by phone later on, and I'm sure you'll scold me as though I were your child, but that is for later. For now, I want to tell you what I've seen and what I'm about to do. I have not, as you suggested, set aside my concerns about Cecilia. After seeing her out and about that first time, I saw her making frequent trips here and there. I would catch glimpses out my windows that faced the street, and twice I saw her while I was out myself, as she seems to be primarily frequenting the park and shops in our neighborhood. It wasn't until the third day of this that I decided to approach her, tell her how happy I was that she was doing better, maybe even suggest we get together like the old times. She was walking back from the local drugstore when I saw an opportunity. I fell in beside her and asked how she was doing. Up close, the difference in her was far more amazing. It's not makeup. She really looks a lot younger. If I didn't know her well, I'd be convinced it was a younger sister or daughter, but no, without question, it was her. Not that you could judge it by how she acted. She knew me and was polite, but she was very distant and strange. Her words and her actions were all fine if bordering on unfriendly, but everything else about her was wrong. Her expressions, the tone of her voice, the way she moved, it all seemed off. And not just because of the passage of time, I can tell you. She also had this odd thing she kept doing. As we spoke briefly, she would periodically twist her mouth slightly as as though she tasted something sour. Neither of us ever acknowledged it, and before I knew it, she had brushed me off and went on her way. This could have been the end of it, and maybe it should have been. I admit that my feelings have been hurt by all of this more than they should, and I have focused on it more than is reasonable. I told myself those very things as I began to follow her over the next couple of days. I know how that sounds. I knew at the time, and yet I still did it. Again, I expect to hear from you on it when we talk, and I won't say I'm undeserving of some choice words, but in my defense, I did it at least in part because of this feeling of wrongness, of danger, that I just couldn't shake. It's bothered me for months now, and talking to her on the street made it worse, not better. So I followed her, as subtly as I could, of course, and to be fair, I think I did a good job overall. 
I never saw her noticing me trailing behind or set up at a nearby vantage point when she went to the grocery store or walking at the park. And to be fair, the mundane routine of her trips was comforting to me. She wasn't doing anything that odd or different than the old Cecilia I'd known. Perhaps I was just overreacting after all. But then, on the fourth day of my spying, she walked past the park and into the woods that lay beyond. I almost didn't follow her. Part of it was shame for spying on her, part of it was fear at getting caught, because I'd come to realize that for some reason I couldn't totally explain, I was a little afraid of her now. That may sound crazy to you. I've suspected you've worried about my mental health over the last few months, if we're both being honest. So have I. But it didn't change the powerful feeling I had that there was something wrong with my friend, and if I could possibly help, I needed to try. So I followed her into the woods. She didn't go too far before reaching a small clearing in the group of people that waited for her there. A couple I recognized from town. Another two or three I'd seen coming in and out of Cecilia's apartment over the last few months. The rest of the better than a dozen figures circling her were strangers to me, or if I knew them, I was too distracted to know or care. They'd encircled her as soon as she walked into the clearing, their voices echoing off the ring of trees as they began to chant in much the same way as the noises I've told you about from her apartment. There was a large round wicker basket in the middle of the circle, and Cecilia went to it and lifted the lid without hesitation. Glancing down into it, I saw her mouth twist slightly as she smoothed her skirt and knelt down before it. This next, you'll think I'm crazy. That's unavoidable, but it's the truth, and I need there to be a record of this, both for me and for you. And, well, I don't want to be the only proof of this having happened, just in case things go differently than I'd like. Cecilia opened her mouth wide and leaned over the basket. At first, I thought she was going to throw up, and I guess in a way she did, but it wasn't vomit that came out. It was snakes. Thick, black and green snakes, impossibly wide and long, slid out of her mouth into the basket one after another. I didn't count, but there was over a dozen, far more than could have possibly been inside her given the size. She'd filled the basket by the time she was done. After it was over, Cecilia simply stood up, replaced the lid on the basket, and dabbed at the corners of her mouth for any errant lipstick. She gave no indication of being troubled by the horrors she'd just vomited up, and after a brief glance around at the group, she headed off in the direction of home. I stayed where I was for the next three hours. I watched the others carry the basket away, and I saw or heard no sign of them returning, but I was still terrified of being seen or caught. So I waited until the lights started growing dim and then made my way back to the apartment to write this email. I'm going over there tonight. Right now, I can hear her over there, I think, and I have to confront her, try to help her. If I don't do it now, if I talk to you first, I'll be too scared and too weak to do it. And maybe that'd be the safer choice, the smarter choice, but that doesn't mean it's the right one. And I'm too old to want to add any more regrets than I can help. It may be that I call you before you even read this, but if not, please don't worry. I'll call you when I'm done, either later tonight or tomorrow. If you haven't heard from me by tomorrow night, 
please check up on me. But under no circumstances are you to interact with the Cecilia or any strangers here. I've debated not telling you any of this out of fear. It will push you forward to the very people I'm afraid of, but I'm trusting you to listen to me on this. If something goes wrong, not that it will, please let the authorities do whatever can be done and stay out of it. Do not catch the attention of these people and whatever terrible things they are doing. I love you. Stay safe. I'll talk to you soon. Mom. I didn't read that email until the morning after it was sent, and naturally, texted it and then called my mom to see how she was doing. There was no answer for the first or the second time, and by mid-afternoon, I was trying her once an hour. It was around three when she picked up. Yes? Mom, it's Maddie. I- I've been calling. I got your email. I. Are you, are you okay? How are you feeling? Hey, Maddie. I- I'm fine, dear. Just fine. How are you? Um, I'm okay. Just worried. Did you go over there to Miss Seibert's place? Oh, yes. She's doing fine, too. We've actually become quite close again recently. But, I mean, that email really had me worried that the snakes and... Oh, God. (laughs) I'm so sorry, Maddie. That was meant as a joke. I... Well, me and Cecilia got a little tipsy yesterday, celebrating our reunion and all, and we got to laughing about how paranoid and worried I'd been, how I'd been telling you all this weird stuff. Well, we wound up writing that email as kind of a prank, I guess. I was going to call you last night and tell you it was a joke, but honestly, we fell asleep, and I guess I slept most of the day away. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you really got me. Fuck. I... Are you sure you're okay? Fine as paint, dear. Thank you for calling, but I really must be going. Talk to you soon, okay? Uh, how about if I flew out this... The line was already dead. I'm writing all this down now because I did fly out yesterday. At the time, I was worried that Mom was hiding some kind of mental breakdown and wanted to make sure that it was all the prank like she'd claimed. I decided against calling her, warning her that I was coming. I wanted to see things as they were, not how she wanted to present them. I felt guilty about it, but it was the only way I could be sure she was okay. So I flew into town, rented a car, and drove over to her apartment. I bust her apartment, but there was no answer. After several tries, I decided to try Mrs. Seibert's place. No answer there either. It was as I was turning around to head back to the car that I saw them walking up the street together. It took me a second to recognize them. Mrs. Seibert, well, my mother had been right. She looked younger than me, and more healthy and beautiful looking than I had ever remembered. As for my mother, she looked different as well. Her skin was pale and ashen, with flakes of dry skin scaling up on her cheeks and arms. Her her hair looked dry and brittle as broom straw, and her lips were split and scabbed at the corners as though her mouth had been stretched too wide for too long. Despite all that, she was smiling when I approached them. Hello, Maddie. What a great surprise. Her voice was hoarse, but she kept a light tone as she met my eyes. Light, but uncaring. Not at all her normal reaction when she saw me after a few months, especially if it was a surprise. Uh, 
Hey, Mom. I glanced at the other woman who was regarding me coolly. Hey, Mrs. Seibert. Hi, Madeline. Good to see you. Her expression didn't change, but her gaze shifted to my mother. We should be going. My mother glanced at her, then back at me with a slight nod. Yes, I'm afraid so, dear. Good to see you. We'll have to visit again while you're in town. I couldn't hide my surprise. What? Can't you do something now, or I can go with you guys? I'd really like to talk and see you for a bit. Her mouth twisted slightly as though she'd bit into a lemon. No, not right now. You really should have called before you came. It's very inconsiderate. She glanced at Mrs. Seibert again. In any case, we're late for an appointment. I'll discuss that with you later. With that, they walked past me without another glance. I thought about following, about pressing the issue, but there was no point. Whatever strange influence Mrs. Seibert might be exerting on my mother, it was too strong. I needed to get her alone. So I'm writing this because of what I've seen, of all my mother had seen before. I don't know what parts of it I believe and what parts I don't, but I'm scared enough now that I want there to be some record of it all. Because I understand what Mom meant now about the wrongness that you feel. I felt it being around Mrs. Seibert and Mom yesterday. I can't tell you how or why, but there's something off beyond their appearances. Something has happened here, or is happening here, and I have to try and figure it out. I have to talk to Mom. It seems like I wasn't the only one with that idea. As I'm writing this, I just got a text from my mother. She wants to meet tonight at her apartment around 8. I offered to pick us up some dinner and bring it over, but she said not to worry. The meal is already taken care of. Thank you.